1: You hear about them all the time.
0: Surveillance cameras capture a burglary taking place at Bossa. A couple of thieves in San Francisco burglarize the same garage multiple times in a night, and it's
2: all caught on camera. Violent smash and grab caught on camera in San Francisco's Chinatown. Because the quality is so great, so many of these cases are more solvable now. Usually these
1: are one-offs, ring or nest cameras that someone buys to keep an eye on their home or business. There are other, more sophisticated and extensive systems in the city too. But unlike in other cities, say Chicago or New York, police don't have round-the-clock access to cameras. San Francisco limits the circumstances under which police can monitor third-party cameras. The idea is to restrict how much information the government can collect and share about people who are just existing in public. Despite all that, these cameras are there, hundreds of them, ostensibly to investigate crimes. Why aren't they being used to address the widespread theft that has retailers pulling out their hair, or persistent drug dealing? And with restrictions on accessing private camera networks, why can't the city use its own cameras? I'm Laura Wenis. For the next two weeks, we're digging into these questions. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. Let's start in the Tenderloin. Kate Robinson is showing us around. She's executive director of the Tenderloin Community Benefit District.
3: Right now, we're on a nice, clean block, all is well. But as we work our way down Hyde Street, you'll see some some negative activity in that there's open-air drug dealing taking place.
1: We eventually walk past a pretty common scene in this neighborhood. A group of people are sitting and standing around, some of them napping or chatting, some people smoking.
3: I generally put my mask on when I'm outside to not inhale smoke. To
1: my eye, nothing seriously bad is happening here, but there is stuff scattered around, and it's a bit of a mess. Someone, not any kind of official as far as we can tell, comes by and tells people to move. Everybody that's here, come to find a better place.
2: Yes, I'm about to clean this pitch up. <laughs>
3: come on! That's our We're all going to a better place someday.
1: <laughs> no, no,
0: no, don't, don't talk shit. I'm <laughs> you
1: It looks like a fed-up building manager or landlord shooing people away, taking sidewalk cleaning into his own hands. I don't know exactly what the relationship between all these people was, but I'm glad this guy didn't come at anyone with a hose. The Tenderloin Community Benefit District and other groups are doing their best to make the kind of situation we just witnessed, and the more high-stakes versions, where there's a crime in progress or violence is imminent, increasingly rare. Urban alchemy practitioners keep an eye on the streets. Volunteers and service providers chaperone families on their way to schools through crosswalks and busy intersections. There's also tons of pressure washing, and 60% of this neighborhood is recorded on camera, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.
3: So now we, we begin to see the transformation of the Tenderloin. So this is the intersection of Turk and Hyde, and this used to really be the very similar to where we kind of came from. In the northern part of the neighborhood, where there was a high concentration of open air drug dealing. But this is also the area where the most children and seniors walk, especially this corridor. And this was our number one intersection for our safe passage program. And just over the last uh, year and a half, as Urban Alchemy have been here and really partnering with us, we see just positive engagement. I've seen kids playing at the nearby park, the Turk Hyde Mini Park. You know, kids are playing in the park at 7 p.m. And I, in my 13 years, would have never imagined that that was possible. It seems so simple, but it happens now. And it's because there's so much care put into this place and coordination. We have the cameras, we have the The, you know, Urban Alchemy, we have our clean team, safe passage, and our park stewards all working together to care for this space. And this is transformation. And this is what we need throughout the neighborhood at all times.
1: The different efforts overlap. But out of all of this, it's the cameras that have recently been touted as a potential game changer for fighting crime and sharply criticized as a surveillance overstep. Here's why. Last fall, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors approved an experiment. Give police officers expanded access to privately owned and operated camera networks and see if it improves public safety. The initiative was aimed specifically at drug dealing, retail theft, and illegal vending. Mayor London Breed promoted cameras and the need for expanded police access to them when she announced her emergency declaration for the Tenderloin in December 2021.
3: The Tenderloin needs an emergency Response. Period. In 2019, the Board of Supervisors passed a law that limited law enforcement's ability to use camera feeds during emergency situations. There are exceptions where they can, but for a lot of the issues like what happened in Union Square, they could not. Where there were multiple robbery crews hitting multiple stores, they couldn't even access those cameras which is ridiculous. Think about that. During an incident of severe looting, of our officers are not able to use a tool that we have that other jurisdictions all over this country can use.
1: Police have long had the ability to monitor private cameras live during exigent circumstances. For other situations, if they wanted to change the way they use surveillance technology— say, to have ongoing live access, they would previously have to get approval from the Board of Supervisors. There has been a lot of confusion about this. You may remember when the SFPD monitored cameras in Union Square live during protests over the murder
2: of George Floyd in 2020. Now, the city doesn't allow the police to watch live security camera feeds without first getting approval from the Board of Supervisors.
1: Privacy advocacy groups sued the city over that, but the court ruled against them. They unsuccessfully tried to argue that the circumstances were not, in fact, exigent. Still, police and the mayor and other advocates said the barriers to access were too high. After several iterations of a new proposal, police can now ask for live access either in emergencies or to investigate crimes with just written permission from a captain. The monitoring can go on for up to 24 hours. Why would police need access to private cameras? Doesn't the city have its own cameras? It's hard to answer that with confidence because the police department never responded to any of our more than eight requests for comment on this topic over the course of nearly two months. But the short answer is no. The city's primary security camera system doesn't work. A 2014 story from Hoodline explains why. More than a decade ago, then-Mayor Gavin Newsom had a problem with violent crime on his hands. Like we often do on this show, he looked at how other cities were addressing this, and he found a model in Chicago. That is a city with a huge camera network. Newsom decided to try cameras here. This became known as the Community Safety Camera Program, and what started with just a handful of cameras at a few intersections grew to several dozen cameras. But in 2008, a report evaluating how well they worked turned up disappointing results. They had very poor frame rates, only capturing about two images per second. That makes it hard to use them for evidence, because events that unfold in a fraction of a second mostly aren't captured. Crucially, these cameras also couldn't be monitored live. And since an upgrade would have cost something like $25,000 per camera, and this was during a recession, that network wasn't updated. It was left to fall into disrepair. That decision was controversial, as you can hear in this clip from a 2008 Board of Supervisors committee hearing. If we accept this motion, we'll eliminate the maintenance of shot spotters, and the existing cameras will have no maintenance. So we'll just have a bunch of cameras up there, uh, and if they break down, we've got no money to fix them. Uh, Seems terribly ineffective and ridiculous. Since then, the city has installed other cameras, but each department has its own cameras and network. Most systems just monitor specific buildings. Some of those are quite extensive. City Hall alone has more than 160 cameras. The SFMTA might have the most robust system. It operates some 15,000 cameras, mounted on signal poles, on stations and platforms, and on buses and trains. Its surveillance technology policy says police can access the footage or monitor it live in the event of an incident, which isn't defined. Again, since the police didn't talk to us, we don't know whether or how they access other departments' cameras. But about 10 years since the Board of Supervisors decided not to renew its ailing community safety camera network, it is now definitively defunct. Enter Chris Larson.
2: I am the exec chair of Ripple, which is an enterprise blockchain company located here in San Francisco, but I actually spend most of my time on climate change. I am kind of helping fix San Francisco, if you will.
1: One thing he's done to try to fix the city? Fund private camera networks. More on that after a break. Chris Larson, executive chair of the blockchain company Ripple, has donated about $4 million over the last five years to various business and neighborhood groups to set up cameras. These groups are often a type of hyper-locally-governed nonprofit known as a CBD or community benefit district, like the Tenderloin CBD. Once Larson's foundation makes a grant and the CBD accepts it, they run the program. Larson, his foundation, and the video contractor most of them work with don't have much say after that except to recommend best practices on things like how long to store video. Actually putting the cameras to use is entirely up to the CBD— it's worth noting that Larson actually thinks this should be a government program, mainly to create geographic equity.
2: My view is like, hey, you know, we're using philanthropic dollars here to sort of jumpstart a program that these hyper-local nonprofits can, you know, deploy quickly. But at the end of the day, these should be city-run systems, right? They should be tools, just like you have, you know, police cars and other tools that that law enforcement has, so that you do get you know, kind of even, you know, access to to these tools. So, you know, again, if you're just having these camera systems put in Union Square and not in the Bayview, is, is that fair?
1: These new networks are very sophisticated systems, much more so than a single camera above a street corner.
2: One of the effective things about these programs is it's a, a network of cameras. So it's, it's typically, you know, a, a number of blocks usually defined by the by the district but that's very helpful so you might see the initial crime on camera but maybe the person is covered up but maybe four blocks away you'll see maybe the getaway car or you'll see the person then revealing themselves or you'll get more information that will link to the initial crime and that's that's extremely helpful and that's how why we think that these systems which we think are also much better for privacy concerns are also much more effective for public safety compared to, let's say nest cameras, which might only capture the initial incident and capture it poorly, right? Because it's not high definition enough compared to these network cameras. So, you know, it's really important to get the kind of additional context of hundreds of cameras and sensors that are going to be deployed in those situations.
1: These are not the choppy, grainy CCTVs of yesteryear.
0: So we have three different types.
1: This is a camera expert with the Tenderloin Community Benefit District, one of the organizations that operates a network with a grant from Larson. She asked not to be named because the Tenderloin CBD staff that work on these cameras regularly endure harassment and threats when they're seen cleaning or maintaining them.
0: One is a multi-sensor one that has four different cameras, up to four. So you can get a 180 or 270 degrees. So a lot of our cameras are on the corner. So you capture two sides of the whole block. And then we do have the bullet single sensor one that aims further away and it's better definition. So you can see the whole story and you get a better image quality when you submit that in for evidence. And those are the two. And we tried a new one that is HD, but it changes colors at night, to do black and white so that you can capture license plates. A lot of the crime that goes on here, they tend to leave in getaway cars. And so they need evidence of the vehicle. And that helps with prosecuting.
1: This network is constantly recording 60% of the Tenderloin. It's a small geographic area, but that takes 146 cameras with a total of 223 angles. And they're going for more. Larson, the city's unofficial camera benefactor, says the CBD is aiming for 100% coverage of the neighborhood, and he'll fund it. When the Tenderloin CBD originally received the funding to start this network, they first surveyed the community. They formed focus groups to get input from neighbors and developed a set of policies that put fears about privacy to rest. The cameras don't record audio. They're pointed only at public sidewalks, not up toward residential windows. There's no facial recognition software. And regarding police access, police can only get footage in connection with a case number, and the
0: cameras aren't monitored
1: live. Not by police, and not by the CBD either
0: we only access the camera footage when there's an incident so if someone gets their car broken into and a civilian who's a resident here or came here and worked and had their car broken into and in order for them to get an insurance claim they need evidence so we would find the incident export that and share it with them and
1: so they come someone who's a victim of a crime comes to the CBD directly and is just like hey this happened do you have any footage
0: So we would check first to make sure that they are not just giving us something random. If there's no evidence of an incident there, we would tell them that we're not going to export anything. But since we are required by California to provide any data that we have, we help them find the incident they're looking for. And that's what we give to them if it exists. And if it's there, we release it. If there's nothing, we don't give that footage out.
1: So wait a minute. Didn't I say earlier the city recently expanded police access to private networks, allowing them to monitor these camera feeds live under certain circumstances? That doesn't work here. The Tenderloin CBD network can't be monitored live. The system isn't set up for it. That rules out things like monitoring an emergency situation or investigating crimes in progress, which cops are now allowed to do but just isn't possible with this network. Even if these cameras can't be monitored live, could expanded access to the network still be useful in addressing drug dealing, one crime the mayor and district attorney emphasized they wanted to focus on in the Tenderloin? The CBD camera expert says that's not really how the system is used. In fact, they don't generally get requests related to drug dealing incidents from the police, more likely from the public defender.
0: SFPD doesn't submit requests for those. Because in order for them to do that, someone needs to call and say a crime is happening. Then they produce a report and you get a case number and then you come and get that footage. But SAPD doesn't go through that process. So if they want to, they can. There's nothing that says that they couldn't. Yeah, It would
1: just be hard. They have to like name a specific time window and be like, we're looking for a sale of fentanyl in this time frame. And you'd be like, what does the sale of fentanyl in this time frame look
0: like? It's it's a lot. So it's that's why the ones that we get are only from the public defender's office because there was a sting operation that happened. The person went was cited or arrested and then they become a case for the public defender's office. And that's when we get that request for that footage.
1: The mayor's office says essentially it doesn't need this specific network. There are other cameras in the Tenderloin. The office's written statement reads, quote, Not being able to access footage from partners that do not have live video capability is definitely an obstacle. However, the tenderloin CBD is not the only partner we have, end quote. That could mean other individuals or organizations that have their own cameras and are willing to give access to police. Which made me think, okay, that sounds like this program to give police easier access to private cameras might still have some effect. Well, I learned recently that for months after the policy was approved, SFPD did not make a single request for live monitoring access. And no news is not good news to privacy advocates like Nicole Ozer from the ACLU, who have been alarmed by cameras from the beginning.
3: So one has to think, okay, well... Where are these cameras actually being used? Where is the live monitoring actually going to happen?
1: They say surveillance devices designed to broadly capture information about people in public inevitably get used in ways that put vulnerable people at risk of harm. And they question whether it makes any sense to sacrifice privacy for security, because they say expanded surveillance doesn't actually lower crime. We'll grapple with that next week. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SFNext project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. And we want to check out your ideas. Do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at SFNext. I'm Laura Wenis. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SFNext project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SFNext project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.